Hi, folks. Welcome back to What in the History for a very, a very dark part three of episode 20. Uh, again, we are covering the Texas Tower, Tower shooting and Charles Whitman. Uh, I'm Dan Brady. Most people would say that I'm Johnny Smith. I say you're Johnny Smith. <laughs> so, Johnny, how what's the name? How are you enjoying the episode so far? I am doing my best to keep the strength up for the episodes, and it's they're very entertaining. They're very entertaining right now. I and I am helping heal you through these episodes, and I absolutely love it. I love being able to actually see the smile. I know your world's falling apart right now, and uh, bless you. I am so sorry for you, but I think this is the best thing for you to do, man. And I see it happening again, so we're going to get right into it. In part two, we talked about uh, the <laughs> mental unraveling of uh, Charles Whitman, and it, it was very noticeable. People around him noticed. Uh, if this was happening day and age, he would have probably been in an inpatient program part someone would have probably dropped him off at the mental hospital and said, Hey man, you need to sleep for a few days. Yeah. He could have used some, he could have used some intervention. Like he just worked himself up and just put so much stress on him. And, you know, once it got to the breaking point, just everything snapped and it all seemed the undoing really seemed to be when his mom left his dad. Do you agree with that? Yeah, but and that's a weird part to me because it seemed like he was so relieved that she had, you know, escaped his father. And then he put he already he set her up quickly, you know, yes. for not an amazing life, but a free life. And then he let himself stress the fuck out over his dad potentially coming back. You know, of all things, that's what I try and preach to people is don't let your life be crippled by the fear of what could happen. And that was part of what was eating him up. I, I don't think it was the fear of what could happen. It's the fear of what had happened. His dad. I mean, he was just he was just on edge waiting for his father to show. No, no matter how big Charles Whitman got, he was still afraid of his dad and the, the mental manipulation. And not to mention, you also got to remember at this time, too, he's in debt to his father. So I'm sure his father was loading that over his head too. Like, hey, I gave you this money. I'll stop the money. Give me your mom. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, I could see I could see how the uh an overwhelming feeling on a person. But I can tell you there is one good part of the story, and that is the absolute fact that I can tell you that his mom never saw Charles Sr. again. Oh boy. Uh, cause I know what's about to happen. That is fucking dark, man. Jesus Christ. I said it very dark episode today. I am in, <laughs> I am the ring. I am ready. This is my forte. And again, <laughs> another disclaimer at the top of the episode, no matter how much it feels like we are feeling sorry for Charles Whitman, he is a piece of shit and I am glad he's dead. Yeah. I'll, I'll second that. Glad he's dead. Oh, man. So, right when we ended part two, he decided he needs to die. But he's not going to commit suicide. So, he's going to go out and be remembered uh, for what he did. Because always striving to be the best man. 
And uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, such a shitty move. Such a shitty move. Yeah. So, uh, in the brief window between the decision being made and Charlie putting his plan into action, it was about three, four months since he made the decision. He said he's going to do it. Um, and so he, he did. Helped. He did a bunch of planning during that month. Yeah. Um, so his sudden change in attitude was a welcome relief to those around him. Friends noted that all the tension that had once plagued him had gone, uh, and he seemed to be able to relax and enjoy his life without worrying about the future. Because to him, there is no more future. Um, so, Kathy like, once was- he resolved to killing a bunch of people like that, he just seemed like he was relieved and a much more lighthearted person. Well, he knew he knew he didn't have to plan outside of August, you know? Like he no longer has the stress of providing for his wife and the eventual kids and just all this. Like none of that weighed on him anymore because he knew that wasn't gonna happen. That's I mean, <laughs> I guess there's a freedom in that, you know, nothing past August. So everybody noticed he started to relax. Uh, Kathy was working at the telephone company, but for that brief period, uh, Charlie's all important studies fell to the wayside and he was happy to give her a ride to and from work each day and night. Even his mother received extra attention, which Charlie picking her up after her cafeteria shift and taking her out to see a matinee, making time to spend time with her instead. Oh, wow. This guy. I get the like, sentiment. What the fuck? Also, uh, fuck him. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I can't believe this piece of shit. I want to show him a good time before I murder him. Uh, so the day before he planned to act, uh, Charlie dropped Kathy off at work, did some shopping around town for general supplies, including a new hunting knife and some tins of spam. Uh, then stopped by his mother's work uh, as her shift ended uh, and then took her uh, out to a matinee. With that done and his mother safely delivered back to the penthouse apartments, uh, Charlie drove home, settled in at the kitchen table at 6.45 p.m., began to type. And what he typed was actually... uh, what Johnny read at the very beginning in the intro. You know, I'll say this because I'm sure you'll cover it uh, in much more detail later on. But the fact that you said he bought a new hunting knife, I found it interesting that among the armory he had with him, this motherfucker also had three knives with him. Like he was planning to go tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, like, he did all this, and he set out to, um, he started typing this note, and this is basically his confession, his, uh, his suicide note. Okay. And, and like it, 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 as you guys heard, you know, at the beginning, it was riddled with him describing his mental struggles. Right. And also, you know, like a lot of his stressors and stuff like that. Um, he, he 
barely started to finish it uh, when there was a knock at the door and his buddy Larry again, um, him and his wife dropped in for a chat. They paused at the entrance in the kitchen when they saw that Charlie was working and asked what he was writing. Charlie said, just some letters to old friends. As he See, right there, there should have been a red flag. Right there should have been a red flag. Like, you miserable fuck. You're not keeping up with old friends. Right. Um. So then, uh, the Vietnam War had just broken out. Uh, this is a big, also a big note of his change in his personality. Because he is very, uh, he probably would have, you know, been a conservative. He was very pro-American. Um, and at first he was pro-Vietnam. And his friend Larry was a, you know, uh, lack of better words, a hippie. <laughs> okay. So... The Vietnam War had just broken out, and while Charlie of the past had always been pro-military, um, Charlie only had humanitarian concerns on his mind. I don't think we should be sending our boys over there to die for something that has nothing to do with us. Oh, now he has a goddamn heart? I'm sure a few months ago he would have been signing up to kill Viet Cong himself. Right. Um it was a very noticeable change of, change of tune. Uh, it threw Larry off pretty well. Uh, and Larry, Dan, not to not to even interject, but this is blowing my mind because he's this humanitarian now, but he's about to kill his fucking family. Yeah. He's about to end their suffering, Johnny. He doesn't feel like he's uh, about to kill him. You've read the uh, notes. Yeah, yeah, I... Just because he twisted it up in his little fucking mind like that doesn't mean that's what it is. He's a fucking piece of shit. No, I'm just saying we need to state this from the perspective. That's all. <clears throat> like to him, he wasn't murdering them. He was ending their suffering. Just to get uh, an idea, an image here of how fucked up this dude was. I can understand the perspective. So they leave after a couple of minutes um for all, for so far all this um was nothing but a suicide note but his need to control all over all things extended to his death it wasn't that he was no longer in the world he needed to have the world arranged in a manner that suited him uh after he expired <clears throat> So, like, in that note, he, in one of his notes, he basically says, like, hey, when I'm when I'm dead, uh, I want an autopsy done on my brain. I want you to check this out. I want you guys to do this and this. And they do it. They listen. Mm -hmm. Even in the little documentary I watched, they said they did an autopsy on his request, upon his request. Like, right. don't even phrase it like that, you fucking creeps. Um, so once Charlie finished writing this note at 8.45 p.m.-ish, uh, it was time for him to pick up his wife, Kathy. Oh. Uh. Now what, what he. 
He carefully set aside his typewriter, keeping the note in the same place so he can make any final amendments later once his actions had come to pass somewhere other than his imagination. After a full day work in the building with no air conditioning and the scalding Austin summer heat beating at the brick walls, Kathy was exhausted, yet even in that state, her face lit up when she saw Charlie. See, that really makes me sad. Yeah, still very like, much in love. Yeah, like, that's terrible. Fuck him even more. Don't fuck him. <clears throat> she, uh... She hopped into their black Chevrolet just a, a little after 10 p.m., and he drove her home at a leisurely pace, making the most of their time together, even if she was dozing off in the seat but not beside him. He took her into the house, helped her out of her clothes, and then tucked her into bed, pressing a gentle kiss on her forehead. She murmured in confusion confusion that he wasn't lying down beside her but he reassured her he'd be right back he just had to run a little errand oh man i don't like any of this <clears throat> at all right his mother was asleep when he arrived at her place but by knocking on the door he woke her up um the knife on his belt was so normal that it didn't even draw her attention the gun that he tucked in the smallest back might have raised an eyebrow if she had spotted it. He walked her through the apartment to the bedroom uh, before she got the sense that anything was awry. See, this is the part where it's like he's so whacked out at this point that stuff that should be setting off alarms is just his normal shit. Right. Uh, so he wasn't talking to her. This is all speculation again that he was in once he was inside, he barely even seemed to see her. His bright eyes were so were empty as she asked and pleaded for explanation fight for why he come banging into her house at almost midnight. When he reached for her, she could see that it wasn't an embrace that he wanted, but a grappling hold. She spent a lifetime as a punching bag, learning when to fold herself around the punch and when to brace, and now for the very first time. She didn't allow herself to be hit. She fought back. The same Good for her. That battery um, <clears throat> that uh, had been honed in Charlie had even longer to sharpen. She she ducked out of his reach. She was ready for him. Nice. I like it. She was bobbing, we bobbing and weaving, getting out of the way. Like again, I don't support domestic violence. I'm just happy for this woman. To, uh, in order to grab her, he executed a uh, a special punch <clears throat> with a lot of power. Uh, the hand that she held up to fend off his attacks was snapped back like a twig in a hurricane. Her fingers weren't just broken. They were practically ripped off. Good the impact Lord. was so violent that it knocked the diamond clean out of her engagement ring that she still wore and drove it into the meat of her finger until gold was pressed to the bone. God damn. She was so socked staring down at her ruined mess that she didn't even see Charlie drawing the knife. Oh man. So Charlie, see, what, what, 
what is also irking me about this part is like he is obviously a big dude and can blast some shit. Like, but he was still the psychological hold his father on him. Like, if he would have just took and blasted his fucking father, this might have solved a lot of this. Right. Um. So he stabbed her right in the chest, uh, right in the lung. She let out a little gurgle, then looked down at the red stain in her nightdress and the hilt of the knife still stuck between her ribs. Uh, she fell to her knees, all the power in her body fleeing in a rush of bread. Charlie made no attempt to uh, no attempt to meet her eyes as he tugged the knife out of her chest. The time for emotional connection was long gone. He was cold now, cold in a way that she never had seen him. <sighs> Margaret toppled forward to land on her face in the shag carpet without the blade to slow it. Her injured heart was now free to hammer great waves of blood out. Oh boy. Yeah. This is a brutal death. So Charlie killed his mom. Um, yeah, man. For such as Ava. He didn't want to commit suicide because he was afraid she would go back to dad. So he's like, well, if I'm going out, she's going out too. If I can't have a mom, nobody will. <laughs> That's such a horrible way. Like he thought he was putting her out of her misery, but like brutally killed her. And he My later God. wrote notes to his two brothers uh, that were very short. And they basically were like, hey, yeah, sorry. Uh, bye. Wow, what a piece of shit. Still, like I can't I can't stress that enough. Oh. So now uh he hoisted his mom's corpse up onto the bed, wiped his knife clean on her skirts, and then rearranged her clothing so that her dignity wouldn't be injured when the police came in to find her lying there. It wasn't enough. He needed to tell people why he'd done this. Or they might think of him as a uh, as a continuation of his father's abuse. Uh, the record had to be set straight so he could go on with a clear conscience. He has the weirdest fucking moral compass. To whom it may concern, I have taken my mother's life. I am very upset about having done it. However, I feel that there is a heaven... She is definitely there now. And if there is no life after, I have relieved her of her suffering here on earth. The intense hatred I feel for my father is beyond description. My mother gave that man the 25 best years of her life, and she finally took enough of his beatings, humiliation, and degradation, and tribulations that I'm sure that nobody but she and he will ever know. He has chosen to treat her like a slut that you would bed down with, accept her favors, and then throw a pittance in return. I am truly sorry that this is the only way I could see to relieve her sufferings, but I think it was best. Let there be no doubt in your mind that I love that woman with all my heart. If there exists a God, let him understand my actions and judge me accordingly. He's a bit dramatic with his writing, I think. Don't you think? <laughs> I completely agree. Like, he essentially called his mother a whore. So, <laughs> he took this note 
and he placed it under the covers with his mother. Uh, so, you know, like this is that hypergraphia for sure. Like he, he, you're going to see here, like every step of the way, he is going to a hundred percent write everything down. Like I was surprised, like by the time he gets to the tower, I'm surprised he's able to kill people uh, because he's not writing the entire fucking time. Not for nothing, as big of a piece of shit as he is, and as much as you're trying to shame him, without this well-documentation, we wouldn't know half the story. So, uh, he he was very meticulous in this planning, so uh, what he did next is that his mom would tell him every morning a old man named Roy would come home from third shift and knock on her door to wake her up for work. So he's like, the body needs to be found, but it can't be found before he goes to Texas State. So fair enough. So what he does is he puts a note on the door, and basically, uh, as his mom, he says, "Roy, I don't have to be at work today. Now I was up late last night. I would like to get some rest. Please do not disturb me. Thank you, Mrs. Whitman." Bravo. Oh, thank you. Uh, not the only one who can voice act. What's up? <laughs> Bravo, Dan. Oh, thank you. Uh, so that note would prevent any early discovery. He would also, uh, before he actually walked up the tower, he called his mom's work and said, hey, uh, she's sick today. She's not going to be coming in. Okay, so he's... Uh... He's making sure there's a little bit of coverage. Right. So, okay. His original plan uh, had been to kill Kathy first, but he let the sentimentality uh, distract him from his duty. He loved her so much that he couldn't bear the thought of doing her harm, just as he possessed those th same things feelings about his mother. So he felt like if he killed his mom first, his wife would be much easier to take care of. I can understand that weird ass logic. Hey man, if you can kill your mom, you can kill anybody. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Mother. <laughs> My zapples. So he, he dreaded this drive home. Uh, he just felt like he's going to look down at his wife and just feel a pang of shame and just wouldn't do it. Um, but before he knew it, he was in his driveway. Uh, the house was dark and silent. Uh, and he made his way into the house in silence, slipping off his shoes by the front door so that he, he uh, wouldn't wake Kathy. If she woke up, this would be bad. Yeah, I could see that. It would be much more difficult. Uh, she laid in their bed, sleeping beneath a thin sheet. He drew, drew it slowly off her chest, exposing her bare skin to the night breeze. And uh, then he plunged uh, his knife into her chest with such a force that it went all the way to the hilt. It slipped into Ugh. her heart without even touching her ribs. The guard slammed into her chest so hard that it left a perfect indentation in the same shape. Her Jesus. last breath exploded out of her chest 
and the uh everybody believes that uh she died in her sleep she had no idea what happened well that's that's a good thing that's a consolation prize i guess because it was clear to the heart bam okay i Uh, mean that's good so once once again he went through the mechanical motions of wiping his knife clean uh clean it off turning it to the regular place emotional distress was not an excuse for sloppy work, Johnny. Keep it going. I like the hustle, though, I will say. Yeah. Writing everything down would help make things easier. It would help him sort through the jumble of thoughts that he had experienced ever since his mother raised her hand against him. Uh, so, again, he wrote another, another note uh, about his wife or why he killed his wife. Just he's already covered this. He just needs to keep writing it down and down and down. Uh, I don't to make it clear for people. I, I mean, part of this was the mental disorder, but I think the other part too is he wanted to be famous and he wanted to leave enough uh, paper trail behind to make him famous. Oh, he succeeded. He definitely succeeded. So when he first started this new note, the ink ribbon gave out. So he had to change it. Um, <clears throat> he he kind of freaked out a little bit um, because he needed to write this down, which along with the, the mental disorder. Uh, so he wrote it down at pen and paper, not on the uh, typewriter. Okay. Kicking it old school style. I like it. I'm an old school man myself. I love pen and paper. So he signed it off with his name and sat back with a sigh of relief. That was everything done. Everything explained, all his understanding, outstanding business accounted for, all of his reasoning laid out. Nobody could look at these letters and blame him for what he was going to do. It wasn't his fault. Um, Nobody could look down their noses at him and judge him when he was the real victim here. He caught himself nervously chewing at his fingernails like he had as a child until the habit was finally beaten out of him. You know, what a pretentious fuck, though. What a pretentious piece of shit. They can Um, clearly see the murderous rampage I'm about to go on isn't my fault, so that's that. Right. And this, his mother and his wife were just (laughs) pregame. Now he's really about to get the party started. Oh, yeah. And then... Uh, again, he went through all this uh, stuff in his will. He even put, uh, give our dog to my in-laws. Tell them Kathy loves Scochi very much. R.W. Leisner, Needville, Texas. Yeah, just a real dickhead. Did I talk about this in part one? I can't remember. Yes, you did. Okay. So about how like he fed the dog and then just, you know, like, ah, I'm not going to kill it. Eh, you know? Yeah. He uh, spared the dog. Oh boy. What a hero. My my hero. So he started writing more stuff down. Like I said, he wrote letters to his brothers. Um, and you know, just like, Hey, I liked seeing you the last time you were here. Too bad you're never coming out. Sorry about mom. Yeah, sorry I killed mom. Well, here. This is to his brother Johnny. 
Dear Johnny, Kathy and I enjoyed your visit. I am terribly sorry to let you down. Please try to do better than I have. It won't be hard. Woo! What a self-loathing asshole. Hey, killed mom. My bad. You, you know what? Put that all on me. That was definitely my bad on that one. Good luck. So, uh, the urge to move was leaving him. His uh, energy had been successfully uh, contained. He carefully arranged all of his letters and a neat stack on his desk, tidied away anything that was left to deal with, and settled back into his seat until the allotted time in his schedule. Just before he rose, he remembered one final item of business. If you can find it in your heart to grant me my last wish, cremate me after the autopsy. He gathered up oh all his papers, tucked it into an envelope. He already scribbled with thoughts of the day <clears throat> and laid it down next to two rolls of undeveloped film that he discovered from John, John's and Kathy's parents' last visit. As a final note, he added to the envelope, I never could quite make it. These thoughts are too much for me. What the fuck, man? I mean, it's sad that he's fallen apart like this. But goddamn. At 5.45 a.m., Charlie picked up the phone and called Kathy's supervisor at work to inform him that she was unwell and wouldn't be in for a shift that day. He had his old trunk from the time he served in the Marine Corps, and he began to fill it up with the supplies he felt he might need over the course of the day. Sandwiches an extension cord, a flashlight, spare batteries, rolls of tape, ammunition box, gun cleaning kit, transistor radio, a blank notebook and pens, a towel, a white uh, sweatband, a three-gallon jug of water, a three-gallon jug of gasoline, ropes and, cl and clothesline, a compass, an alarm clock, a pipe wrench, spare clothes, sunglasses, anything that he might conceivably need for the completion of his mission. He was prepared for the long haul, man. Yep. Charlie was nothing if not meticulous in his planning. He calculated the weight of every item he intended to take with him and worked out the distances he'd have to transport him with an architect's eye for detail. Leaving the house and, not, and with Kathy's now chill body, he went out on one final foraging expedition. Starting at the bank, he cashed $250 worth of checks. Carly then moved to the Austin Rental Company where he acquired a dolly for the day to help transport his supplies. Um, next, he stopped in at Davis, Davis Hardware, where he selected a few additional tools, including a re rebar and machete, a locking pocket knife. He also purchased a reconditioned M1 uh, carbine. It's a heftier gun than most of the local hunters would have selected, but Charlie explained quite jovially to the shop assistant that he was planning on killing some hawks. Oh, wow. After he returned a new gun to his car, Charlie went, strode along to another gun store where he wrote a lot of bad checks to pay for a ludicrous amount of ammunition, 
that even made the store owners take note. Once again, he explained his purchase away as a hunting trip for pigs. The next, I mean, that's stop, a good explanation. The next stop was Sears, uh, where he purchased a green rifle case and a shotgun on a payment plan when his funds dried up. From there, he headed home to continue the prep work. He sat out front on his porch with a hacksaw and worked his way through the shotgun stock. When the regular postman, postman Chester Arrington arrived, the two of them chatted for a while. And while Chester mentioned that he was pretty sure the modifications Charlie was making were illegal, he wasn't in any rush to report somebody for doing what they wanted with their property. USA, USA, USA. USA. Back in the house, he loaded the trunk with guns. The shotgun, a Remington 700 hunting rifle, which is actually a really good hunting rifle. Um, this is not the time the, to give good reviews, Dan. <laughs> uh, a six, millim, uh, six millimeter Remington rifle joined it, as did the M1, a 357 caliber Magnum, an old Luger pistol, and a Jalesi Brasecchia pistol. Uh, apart from the sawed-off shotgun, which would be illegal anywhere in the U.S., he owned every part of that uh, arsenal completely legally and had been training with it for his entire adult life. With if that I'm gun, correct, that gun that you... <clears throat> pronounced the last one, that last handgun, it looked like one of those old handguns the Germans used in like World yeah. War II. Which, let's talk about this for a second. If Charles Sr. was such a great dude, how come he didn't serve in a war during World War II? Huh? You stupid bitch. Charles Whitman Sr. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because he couldn't control his, his wife and kids from overseas. <sighs> he said, Charles so, Whitman Sr., you stupid bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he he put on some khaki overalls to protect his shirt and jeans from the filth of the work that has yet to be done and slipped on a <sighs> green jacket over the top to disguise the militant appearance of his per, uh, personal-fashioned uniform. Uh, he paused briefly at 10.30 a.m. to call his mother's work again and let her let them know uh, that she wasn't going to be in that day. <clears throat> Man, he is, so, just, he is so focused covering all bases. It's crazy. So at last, he hauled the whole hefty crate onto the dolly and rolled it out to his car. With the weight of the equipment, it wasn't practical for Charlie to park off campus and walk in as he usually did. Instead, he drove right up to the campus parking lot, spoke to the security guard, who was happy to give him a parking pass once Charles flashed a badge that declared himself to be a research assistant. Huh. So he's just like, I'm here as a research assistant, y'all. And they're like, okay, come yep. on in, bud. So at 11.30 a.m., he rolled his dolly of gear through the entrance of the main building and right across the, uh, to the elevator. He pressed the button and waited. Nothing happened, and he pressed it again and again, 
And he starts to panic a little bit because the elevator's not working. He can't take this upstairs. He's going to like the 23rd floor, you know? Like he can't, like everything's gonna about to come crashing down. He was panicking. But uh, the secretary uh, turned on the elevator because back in the day, they could turn the elevators on and off based on who was going up. Oh, listen to her. She almost she almost thwarted a plan without even knowing it. Vera Palmer. She uh, uh see, I've never had a good experience with anyone named Vera. <laughs> so she turned it on um for him and he grinned back at her and said, Thank you, ma'am. You don't know how happy that makes me. <laughs> oh wow. On the 27th floor, the elevator reached its limit and Charlie's raw strength had to take over. There were three flights of stairs up to the level of the observation deck and he had to carry his gear all the way up. Even for a man with his exercise regime, it was hard work and he found himself puffing red-faced by the time he reached the top and set the trunk down. Oh, I'm sure that stuff wasn't light at all. So... There are no happy thoughts from this point forward, okay? So we're all negative. We're, we're all, all negative. negative all the time. Okay. There's right, no Edna Townsley was a receptionist for the top floor observation deck. She is 51 years old and such a fixture of the university that there was a standing joke that the tower would fall down without her presence. She had been at the University of Texas since 1958 serving at her, her first decade as a elevator operator before her charming personality and sore legs resulted in her being transferred into a secretarial role. When she okay. saw Charlie come in, she assumed that he was a maintenance man from his entire, but nobody had mentioned any repairs to her. When he didn't talk to her and started digging around in the box he brought up, she strolled over to introduce herself. If he was going to be working up there, the least they could do was to get to know each other and find out how they're, uh, how much they're going to be treading on each other's uh, toes. So, um, so she starts walking to Charlie, starts uh, pulling out his guns, right? And she... Mm -hmm. Has no idea what's going on. She's still thinking like, oh, this is, you know, he's just getting tools out of his bag. And yes, kind of. Um, so <laughs> the butt of the rifle hit her in the eye. Charlie was a big man who honed his body into a lethal weapon. When the rifle connected, it broke her eye socket and knocked a whole fragment of her skull free of its usual structure. structure. She fell to the ground on her face, flopping. Charlie hammered the butt of the rifle into the back of her head, but even then it wasn't sufficient to stop her flopping about. Painfully aware of his exposed position, Charlie dragged her over to the sofa by the reception desk, secreting, uh, hiding her body behind it. She wasn't dead or even truly unconscious. The pressure of broken bone on her brain left her body twitching and groaning uh, sporadically, trapped somewhere between waking and dreaming between life and death. Now that the violence oh. had started, 
Charlie moved with a fluidity to his actions that would have startled the people who would have, have only seen him muddling through life. Brutal, so, man. Yeah. So, two people come, uh, come walking in, uh, Cheryl Botts and Don Walden. Uh, the couple had been up there for only a few minutes, taking in the sights. Both of them, um, they didn't hear the commotion, and uh, they didn't even know Charlie was up there. And they found him, and uh, they had frozen, basically scared him until his face broke into a smile, and he said, Hi, how are you? They headed over to the stairs, making no comment on the gun in Charlie's hands. It was more, a more innocent time when the sight of a man with when a rifle didn't immediately send the world into panic. Don assumed that the man was up there uh, to take some pot shots at the pigeons, and whilst he wouldn't share his view with the more soft-hearted Cheryl, he'd be glad if the population died back a bit. Okay. <laughs> that's Charlie an interesting counted, detail. Yeah. Uh, Charlie counted their... That's what I'm here for. Uh, Charlie counted their footsteps down the stairs and then snapped back into action. First, he needed to secure his position. Then he could plan move on to the next phase of the plant. There is plentiful furniture in the reception area where folks like to congregate and socialize uh, through the day, starting with the reception desk, he began dragging it over, constructing a barricade over the entrance to the stairwell. With the uh, desk in place and supported by some furniture at the uh, rear, he turned his attention to laying out his gear and preparing for the trials to come. So, he's getting ready. He's he's getting the sanctuary together. He's getting ready to do uh, quote unquote work, uh, and then he hears voices uh, down in the stairwell. Four men and a woman. No, it was two women. Their first assault on his position would come from inside the tower. Uh, N.J. Gabor had brought his whole family along with him to visit his sister Marguerite in Austin. His wife Mary and both his sons Mike and Mark. His sister had been living in the big city life uh, with William Lamport, but he couldn't have any shame. Uh, didn't have any shame about where he came from or, or what it brought him. Those boys were his pride and joy. Big Mike was a cadet in the U.S. Air Force, and his little brother looked set to follow in his footsteps. <clears throat> MJ huh. wasn't completely sold on the idea of hiking up the tower, uh, but he he later mentioned he was pretty excited about it. It was a good day up until this point. Um, when Mike and Mark reached, remember, dark, Johnny, we're about to go very dark. Yeah, I'm waiting for it. <laughs> when Mike and Mark reached the barricade at the top of the stairs, they took one look at each other, grinned, and then started to climb over it, finally finding a gap by the outside wall that they could squeeze through. They were laughing and jostling each other, trying to um, be the first one through the breach. When they finally crossed over the obstacles, Charlie didn't say a word. 
he just stepped forward and opened up with both barrels of the shotgun. One minute Mark was there laughing, and the next half his head was gone, plastered up the wall in a long red smear. Mike's brother's corpse had chilled him from the worst of the shell meant for him. He took the brunt of the attack in his shoulder, shocked, knocked knocked him off his feet just as surely as the partial decapitation has downed his brother. But when instinct drove him to grab at the stairs to stop the agonizing slide down, only one of his arms would work. Really? So... Charlie knew there was more people. He pressed himself to the barricade, thrust the shotgun through a gap, and squeezed out another shot. Marguerite, Marguerite and Mary Frances took it to the face and chest. Mary Frances hit the ground like a dead weight, but Marguerite still clung to consciousness, letting out a keening uh. shriek that nearly deafened everyone in the hall. Neither mm -hmm. NJ nor William really grasped what had happened yet. All that they understood from their angle was that some sort of explosion had gone off up the stairs and their wives had been caught in, the, in it. They rushed forward, almost rounding the corner into the line of fire when Mike saved them. He cried out to them to go get help. He told them that they'd die if they came in and closer. All that they could do was leave their family behind and go get help. They shouted back and forth with Mike, trying to understand what had happened. And when they grasped that there was a man with gun, they reversed their course and took the elevator back down. Mike had kept his cool under pressure. And if Charlie had been in any fit state to understand the conversation that was going on in the stairwell, he probably would have respected him for it. But Charlie had left the building. The white sweatband was tied around his forehead the arsenal weapons had been laid out in the easy reach, and his rational mind had given away to his perfection. He casualty fire, casually fired a shot from the hip into the back of Edna's head, finally putting her out of her misery. Taking one last steadying breath, he stepped out into the spotlight of the sun, soon to make his debut. Woo! This is getting intense, man. It's about and to get worse. Here, and a here we go. Uh, Claire Wilson and Thomas Ekman had been first year anthropology, uh, <clears throat> had first year anthropology class together. And because it was such a blazing hot day, <clears throat> they mutually agreed to stop by the student union for a cold drink before heading back to the afternoon class. Thomas didn't need the break, but Claire was eight months pregnant and <clears throat> and, you know, needed to stop for a break. So <clears throat> they stepped back out into the sunshine of the South Mall at about 11.45 a.m. And I don't think this is the correct time. Because remember, Charles Whitman entered the building at 11.30. You're telling me that he went up the elevator, <clears throat> dragged that heavy chest up three flights of steps, killed four people or so, made a barricade, and prepared himself all in 15 minutes? No, there's no way. I don't know, man. He is super, super efficient. You know, he was like a nut job of efficiency. Claire had heard a crack in the a distant cracking sound. Thomas glanced around, thinking a car had backfired. And when he turned back, Claire was on the ground, her stomach drenched in blood. 
Target number one died with a, when a bullet shattered his skull. Oh, boy. Yeah. So he aimed for the unborn child in the in his mother's stomach and shot him directly in the head. That's how we start this whole thing. That is going to be the pace going forward. This is going to be like a TV show where everybody you know dies. No that's, one is scared. That's crazy. Man, he's just... See, it's it's difficult because it's such efficiency. It's like, it shouldn't be praised, but the action of efficiency is insane. Yeah. If that makes any sense. He has a machine-like efficiency here. So, Thomas dropped to his knees beside Claire, panic already taking root as he tried to stop the flow of blood with his bare hands. If he was speaking to her, Claire couldn't hear him over the ringing in her ears. Then just as suddenly as he appeared looming over her, he vanished from sight, leaving her staring up into the big, blue, empty sky. Charlie's second shot hit Thomas in the chest, missing the heart, but striking enough of the nearby blood vessels to ensure his near-instant death. The man toppled over backwards like a puppet. Wow. Robert Hamilton Boyer was a mathematician at the university who had been turning his immense intelligence towards problems of physics for many years. As a part of a worldwide team, he is working to transform Einstein's, Einstein's theory of general relatively into a mathematic model for the universe. It's been... Particular area of expertise revolved around black holes. Robert was walking outside of the lecture hall, always walking so briskly that others felt the need to move aside or match his pace. On the day in question, he was being orbited with one of his by one of his PhD students, uh, Deverew Huffman who was peppering him with questions while they traveled. The bullet hit Robert in the lower back, exploding through his spine and sending fragments of bone out into his kidneys, liver, bladder, and intestines. One of the greatest minds of a generation was cut down in his prime by a cruelly cruelly direct application of the physics that he had helped mankind to unravel. He didn't die instantly, but he lost consciousness from the pain pretty fast. Huffman Mm. saw his mentor fall and leapt forward to immediately go to his aid. This immediate act of response saved his life because instead of being shot in the chest, he was shot in the arm. Charlie's second round passed through the meaty part of his upper uh, arm rather than his lungs. So this guy being so concerned for his professor actually saved his life. Good on him. Seeing the two men suddenly fall aside by side, Charlotte Dershori, a secretary in the university property, dashed out to help them before realizing that she too was under fire. Charlie's first shot winged past her, and she sprinted for the concrete base of the flagpole, standing proud you know, the flagpole standing proud in the center of the mall. It was only the solid cover. It was the only solid cover in the area. 
Huh. <laughs> David Mats Matson, Roland Elk, and Tom Herman were well-known faces about campus. They they were a good bunch of dudes. They had just joined the Peace Corps. They were all good friends. They all had good peer intentions for the world. Right on. And David spoke with his hands kind of like I do. And he was in the middle of gestating, uh, just, you know, talking with his hands when his wrist exploded. Ugh. Fragments of bullets and bones showered the other two, peppering Roland's arm and stinging Herman enough to make him leap into the cover of a doorway. Another shot clipped the masonry behind them, sending Roland scampering for cover too, until he realized that they left David out there in the middle of the pavement, staring at his own ruined hand. <clears throat> oh. Uh, so Roland ran out and uh, brought David back to safety. The next bullet drilled into the middle of uh, uh, was in the middle of Roland's thigh, dropping him to the ground uh, and at David's feet. Um, all the other, all the chaos outside drew the attention of Homer Kelly, the manager of the chef tells jewelers. He rushed out and started pulling the wounded inside and, uh, inside the store to safety, running right out to help David drag Roland. And once Herman was safely behind them between the three of them, they all managed to get inside of the store, um, and we're breathing a sigh of relief when the front window shattered. Tears oh. ran ac across um, ran across the length of the carpet like some invisible claw beast was mauling the shop. Then the glass cabinets began to shatter around them as the ricochets and shrapnel exploded. So this dick didn't give them any time to rest. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it. Boom, boom, uh, boom, Tom boom, boom. <clears throat> Thomas Ashton was later running later than his friends, and he didn't want to be caught out as the last one to the diner where they like to meet up. Uh, he skidded to a halt as he rounded a corner onto a street where the his friends had only passed uh, moments before. When he looked down, his shirt was covered in red. Uh, just standing mm. there in disbelief. All of a sudden, his legs had lost all their power. He toppled forward to land in an uh, ungainly heap by the curb, dead in seconds. Oh, boy. <clears throat> Nancy Harvey and Ellen Avendez uh, were leaving the tower for their lunch together when they thought they heard shots and so rushed back inside. They almost collided with the security guard inside the tower. Now, this is the fascinating part. People inside the tower can't really hear the gunshots coming from the tower. So okay. you have people in this building not knowing. So these girls were coming out. Uh, they almost collided with the security guard when they ran back inside the tower. When they told him they heard shots, they heard outside. He calmed, calmed what he considered to be hysterical women down with some of the common wisdom of the time. Even if somebody brought a gun on campus and shot at somebody else, then it was done. There's nothing I to mean, worry about. 
logically that makes sense, but you are way off, buddy. And this is more the patriarchy fucking yep. up because he just thought the women were hysterical. So the two women uh, walked outside. His his first shot hit Nancy in the hip and deflected off the bone, zinging into Ellen's thigh and dropping the woman like a ton of bricks. Both of them lay there just a hundred yards from the tower where Charlie was perched. They were completely terrified and unaware where the danger was coming from. Those weren't the clean kills that he had been sinking, but they're seeking, but there was something satisfying about hearing their wailing in the wind like a warning all, to all that came near. The rest what of the student that? body had no idea what was going on. The sounds of gunfire were mistaken for construction work that had been undertaken outside of campus. All the people falling to the ground and screaming were assumed to be anti-Vietnam War protesters. Uh, an older male student rolled his eyes as Nancy and Ellen laid laying on the ground in the middle of the day and told them to get up before walking away. Wow. Alec Hernandez had nothing to do with the university of Texas. Uh, it would be another year before he could even think about college at 17 years old, high school dominated most of his days. Um, Denver, Denver Dolman owned a little bookshop just over the edge of campus, and he let out a chortle, chortle when he, oh, sorry, completely cut everything off. Um, <laughs> even his time outside of school seemed to be spent working. He was on a paper route delivering along the stretch of road that ran by the university campus, commonly called the drag by locals, when he heard a distant pop. So now Denver Dolman uh, he looked out of his bookshop and he saw this boy suddenly spring up off his bike and turn a full somersault before hitting the road, squealing all the way. Denver thought it was some sort of bizarre bike accident. In reality, a bullet had hit the sight seat of his bicycle before drilling up into the boy's groin. See, this is at a time where I guess America still had innocence. At some yeah. point, and people couldn't even fathom something like this happening. Right. Um, so <clears throat> Alec was hit in the dick, basically. Uh, the bullet ricocheted off the seat and went up. Um, <clears throat> Karen Griffin saw Alec's comical flip and rushed over to help him up. She nearly slipped into pulling blood when she skidded to a sudden halt. Uh, there was only a moment to take in the gruesome thing before Charlie's next shot hit her in the shoulder before delecting down to shred her lung. She fell to the ground beside her classmate trying to scream, but instead spraying him with a wash of blood from her mouth. Woo! This guy, he was effective as shit, man. He was just shooting, shooting, shooting. Thomas Ray Carr had been up all night studying for a 10 a.m. exam, and he was weaving as he made his way home with his tax accomplished. Um, he had a long rest waiting for him at the other end of his walk, a long overdue date with Oblivion. If he had gone on winding his way home, he probably would have been able to enjoy 
his bed thoroughly, but instead he had to be a good Samaritan dashing over when he saw the injured teenagers in the middle of the street. I mean, you can't blame him for being a good dude. No. Charlie had slowed down his pace at the initial three-minute frenzy. He was taking his time to pick out kill shots now that the crowds were beginning to thin. Didn't want to waste opportunities. When he aimed at Carr, he knew just where to place the bullet, just as he always had with the deer. The bullet hit Carr just below his neck and lodged into his spine. He lost all control of his body and collapsed a few steps away from the bleeding teenagers. Wow. I mean, there's got, there's, uh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> like, there's, you know what I mean? You said it earlier, Johnny, one shot, one kill. This is the mantra that they teach Marines. Even to this day, uh, when we went to the range in boot camp, they said, Hey, uh, you know, Charles Whitman was a Marine. Um, the guy who shot JFK was a Marine like this, you know, all these good shots in history come from our lineage, you know? Oh, that's a hell of a way to brag. <laughs> Marine Corps is a little fucked up. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it had been, now, I think that's putting it lightly, but we'll move on. Uh, it had been 10 minutes since the shooting started. The police had received multiple reports of gun violence in the area surrounding the university but nobody had yet put together the bigger picture of what was truly happening. The situation was unprecedented. David yeah, Gumby had, had almost made it off campus for the day when he realized that he left a book that he needed behind in the library and had to turn around. He was passing by the tower when Charlie fired on him. The bullet passed harmlessly through the meat of his left arm, before plowing into his side. Inside his body, the bullet continued to run out its momentum, deflecting from bone to bone, severing his small intestines before finally coming to a rest in his kidney. At the, at the same moment, the newlywed teenagers on campus, Adrian and Brenda, uh, emerged from the tower to see a man collapsing just in front of them. They rushed forward and were rewarded with a pair of bullets of their very own. Brenda was hit in the hip and toppled over when her leg would no longer support her. Adrian bent over to help and received his own shot in the back. Out on the drag, Sontag. What? Thanks for helping. Right. Out on the drag, Paul Sontag and his girlfriend, Claudia Rutt, uh, were on their way to the doctors. <sighs> he, it's a shame because these are all people just doing the good stuff. You know what I mean? Living their lives. They're not hurting anybody. Right. And he was taking his girlfriend to the doctors so she could get her polio shot so she can attend school. Oh, man. She was probably about to come down with uh, autism, but that's another rant. <laughs> So they bumped into her friend, Carly Sue Wheeler, who looked frantic. She had heard gunfire and was convinced that there was somebody with a rifle up in the UT tower. All three of them turned to look at the tower, and when the distant pops of shots echoed over them, Carla was certain she could see the sun glinting off metal up there. She dragged the other two behind the cover of a concrete uh, 
construction barricade uh, where they would be out of sight, and Paul tried to talk their panicking friend back down to sanity. So basically, uh, this person thinks that there's stuff going on, and um, they're you know they're like, no, you're just uh, you're just uh, just being hysterical. Stuff. Yep, stupid women yep, imagining guns. Yeah. How dare you? Right. And uh, <clears throat> so eventually, in the last ditch effort to convince her that they were safe, Paul stood up from the safety of cover and opened his mouth to say that he told her so. Charlie's bullet entered his mouth and punched out the back of his head. And then in an instant, Claudia was on her feet, screaming for her boyfriend, only... Only Carla had enough sense to stay in cover. Grabbing at the front of her friend's blouse to drag her back to safety, the next bullet went clearly through Carla's hand and into Claudia's heart. That is intense. Mm-hmm. Carla, Carla trying to warn them. Yeah, yeah, she did. I mean, that doesn't mean anything now, but... The police were finally in motion at this point with over a hundred officers in the area surrounding the tower uh, erected roadblocks to prevent anyone from entering Charlie's range of fire. One of the people inconvenienced by this was Roy Schmidt, an electrician who worked for the city and was on his way to a job by the university when the police halted his van. Huh. Like most other people... Behind the barricades, he mill about trading stories about theories about the supposed sniper in the tower. They all felt perfectly safe after being told that they were out of range. It takes some sort of expert to hit somebody at more than 500 yards. Oh boy, here's where they messed up big time. The bullet hit Roy directly in the center of his torso, clipping under his breastbone. He couldn't believe it. They told him he was safe here. He wheezed and a warning to others who still hadn't noticed, I'm hit, I'm hit. Wow, man. And Bill, from what they said, 500 yards was the range. I believe he hit someone at 1,500 yards? I'm not sure. In the little documentary I seen, one guy, yeah. the furthest hit away was 1,500 yards, and the furthest away killed was just under 1,500 yards. Okay. Yeah, uh, he was he was pretty efficient, as we said, and uh, he just he he strived to be perfect in this, and you know, I, I, as horrible as it is, man, he was on top of this game. Yeah, he was. He did what he was trying to do for the most part. Yeah, so uh, now Billy Paul Speed was one of the first officers on the scene at the university itself. He'd been on patrol nearby when the shooting started and responded to the call from Michael Hall, a history professor on campus who ac accurately uh, 
assess the situation immediately, knowing that the South Mall was in the line of fire thanks to the bodies on the ground. Billy and his partner came to a halt behind the decorative stone uh, wall. So basically, uh, you saw this in that video. It's a stone wall with pillars in the middle of it. And this police officer uh, ducked behind it because, like, nobody could make it. It was a six-inch wide gap. Nobody could make it through there, right? That's what they thought. They were mistaken. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it would be impossible to hit somebody behind this cover. Billy flopped to the ground around a moment before the sound of the shot reached their cover, a hole in his forehead the size of a fingerprint. Henry oh. Walchuk wasn't your unit, usual student. He was just shy of 40 years old, a political scientist of some repute, and well on his way to his PhD. It's a shame, man. So many people. Just innocent people. He earned some degree of freedom with all his years of study, although his six children filled out that time pretty neatly, as did his job teaching at the community college. He was out on Guadalupe Street browsing a new paper stand for magazines and chatting away with the men behind the counter when suddenly he fell silent. His hands drifted up to his throat. He grasped at it as if though he were choking on something. It was only when he fell to his knees and his hands dropped that the bullet hole in his chest had become visible. Billy Snowden wasn't a student at all. He was a basketball coach out in town to get a haircut. He was well past the police picket line, nowhere near the danger zone. Again, or so they thought. Yep. The bullet hit him in the shoulder, sundering, staggering back into the store and out of line of sight for a follow-up. He couldn't believe he had been hit this far from the tower. He couldn't believe he'd been hit at all. Sandra Wilson was on Guadalupe Street when Hen Henry Walchek fell, and she was heading to help him when Charlie's next shot hit her in the chest, deflecting off a rib without doing any lethal damage. Oh, Abdul Kassab was an exchange student from Iraq. Him and his girlfriend uh, just crossed from 24th Street onto Guadalupe and spotted their friend and fellow student Lana Phillips on the far side of the barricade when the bullets hit them. And they went over like dominoes, and one after the other with barely time to draw a breath between each expertly placed shot. Lana couldn't believe what her eyes were telling her until she too suffered a bullet wound. She was behind the barricade that the police said marked the range of the sniper, but the hole in her sh shoulder told a different story. Man, this guy was too good at doing this. Like, that's, you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's a quick follow-up, too. Like, you had to have good sh sight picture, and to be able to go, pop, pop, is... Again, if this guy was in Vietnam, he would have dropped a lot of bodies for Uncle Sam. Yeah, very true. Irma Garcia and her boyfriend, Oscar Rovella, came out of ho the Hog Auditorium on campus to be greeted by a hail of bullets. Both of them fell injured but not dead, and it was only the heroic action of a pair of other students risking their lives and dragging them to safety that kept them alive. I mean, it's good to see people helping other people, though. 
uh, this, this was the same story all across the campus. Normal people uh, rising up to the uh, uh, the occasion during terrible and extraordinary situations, um, showing their hero heroism in the face of adversity. Carpenter uh, Avello Esperanza was shot over on the construction site by the campus. He thought he was dead for sure, but his brother and uncle rushed out over to catch him before he could fall and dragged him to safety and help. Far to the north of the tower, Marine veteran and Associated Press reporter Robert Hurd was sprinting full tilt towards his story. A shooter in the tower was going to be headline news. You probably could get the story into papers across the country. His, his injury was a through-and-through -through flesh wound to the shoulder, bad enough that he had to abandon his work and seek medical attention. But even though the pain, even through the pain, he was completely, completely overwhelmed by the talent of the sniper to hit him at that range. What a shot, he said. And of course, it's wow. the fucking Marine that says that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I probably would, you know what? I probably would say the same thing too. Like the wind's pretty high. That's like an 800 yard shot. Jesus Christ. Is this guy gifted? <laughs> but fuck him for shooting me. Fair enough. John Allen was taking shelter inside uh, the student union with a pair of bullets tore through the window. The first shattering the glass and the second slicing neatly through the artery and his arm. Among the heroes of the hour, the medical staff were unparalleled. When it was clear they couldn't safely enter the campus to attend to the wounded, para paramedics commandeered an armored security truck and drove that into the shelter when uh, they went to retrieve the victims. Going even beyond heroism were people like Morris Holman. He was a funeral director in his daily life, but as a result, he had an ambulance at his disposal. Even knowing the risk to his own life, he drove up and down Guadalupe Street uh, loading. Wait, one second. Why does a funeral director have an ambulance? That sounds like he's just creating a lot of business for himself. Different times, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Uh, so he took this ambulance uh and began loading the injured into the ambulance and carting them out to the hospital or the gathering emergency medical staff beyond the barricades. It's because of these actions of Morris and many other like him that the death toll is remarkably low. What was the total? I think 14 dead? 17 total uh, and 31 oh, total. Well, counting the people inside the tower, too, and his mom and his. Okay. Okay, so those three and then four other, 14 other shootings. Morris himself was shot in the leg on the corner of 23rd and Guadalupe. When Charlie finally realized what he was doing, the injury didn't prove to be fatal, but the courage that Morris had been exhibiting throughout the whole ordeal didn't seem to be infectious. He was forced to lie there in the street for 45 minutes listening to a group of construction workers argue about who was going to expose themselves to fire to rescue the man that had already done the same for many others. Huh, okay. Yeah, so we're, 
we're getting to like the climax of the 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 shootout. The police are starting to show up. All his targets are now uh, further away, so he doesn't have any uh, good targets of opportunity in front of him. Okay. So yeah, just uh, I think it's like after the first twenty minutes, nobody else really got wounded. Uh, so basically, it's just him shooting at the cops because they're shooting at him. Returning fire. Uh, the element of surprise had carried Charlie's plan well throughout its first half, but now he began to face opposition. The police were equipped only with his pistols, uh, only with pistols, but didn't have nearly the range to touch him in the, his current position. But the guns weren't only the people in Texas weren't the only people in Texas with guns at their disposal, and the local community turned out in force to defend themselves, opening up on the tower from every direction. Yeehaw! Pew pew! <laughs> Uh, and as long as a rain of bullets was falling on the observation platform, he couldn't stand up and fire freely into the uh, crowds that were gathering below. He was reduced to firing out through the storm gratings uh, around the base of the platform, and that gave him only an extremely limited feel of fire in one direction. So, okay. Uh, so we, so we're getting to that here. Uh, the police haven't surrounded. People are shooting at them. People are keeping them down. Um, now that the police had mo mobilized pro properly, over a hundred officers were swarming around downtown Austin. There are a few sharpshooters on the police force, but ex-army veteran Marion Lee was the best they had. Uh, the police rapidly chartered a light aircraft uh, and sent Lee up to take his shot at Whitman. The plane turned in an ever-tightening pattern around the observation tower. Um, Martin couldn't believe his eyes when Charlie stood up on his platform in the midst of the storm bullets and took careful aim at the plane. With precision and care, Charlie shot the plane three times along the plane's fuselage. Uh, creeping oh. closer and closer with each shot to the fuel tank. Marion didn't even get a chance to take a shot before the pilot pulled him back to a safer distance, and Charlie went back to his lethal work um, without batting an eyelid. Also, fun fact, um, another sheriff's deputy that was in that plane uh, went on to head up the Henry Lee Lucas Task Force a couple years down the road. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, Officer Houston McCoy had responded to the radio call for aid immediately, making a brief detour to collect a rifle that had been volunteered by one of the students. Alan Crum worked in the same campus bookstore near to where Alec Hernandez was shot. He was a retired Air Force tail gunner who had never fired a weapon in combat. He, uh, he spent the first minute of the assault on Austin redirecting, uh, redirecting traffic away from the danger zone before police finally assumed those duties and directed him away from the bookstore. Instead, he followed his instincts and headed for the tower. At noon, uh, Officer Romero Ray Martinez was off duty at home when the call for assistance went out. 
his orders were to head to the area and uh, help redirect campus. But when he got there, there's already a half a half a dozen officers doing this. Okay. By the time those two men arrived uh, at the university, the slot the slaughter had only halted, not but not the firing. The only reason that Charlie's assault had slowed to the odd pot shot, odd pot shot back at the shooters surrounding the campus was the fury of the suppressing fire that was being laid down. Between the planes and the uh, crowds of people shooting up at the tower, Charlie was pinned down, so he wasn't able to lay down effective fire anymore. And, um, you know, so that was slowing everything down. The rattle of suppressing fire was so loud, it was hard to pick out Charlie's odd shots from amidst the cacophony of other shots. F.L. Foster and Robert Freed both suffered wounds in the crossfire between the public and Whitman, and neither man knew for certain which side's bullet struck them. Huh. Okay. Sisters Della and Marina Martinez had traveled all the way from Monterey, Mexico, to visit their friend Dolores uh, Ortega at the university. When the shooting started, they hid on the rooftop of one of the buildings expecting that there was an armed man on the ground, not in the air. Both girls were showered with shrapnel during the firefight. Once again, it was unclear which side was responsible for the injuries. Similarly, similarly, Dolores herself suffered a cut across the back of her hand from a flying glass. Man, this is really intense stuff. Yeah. It was from, um, so, uh, Houston McCoy didn't want to risk a, uh, a direct assault on the tower. So he's looking on another way in and he talked to a couple of janitors and the janitors told him about maintenance tunnels running beneath the whole campus, steam tunnels, access to a sewage pipes and wiring. It was all down there dug underneath the place during the initial rounds of construction in the 1920s and refurbished in the coming years to link up uh, every building uh, bar the Gothic Central building that had uh, been the university's original focal point. Houston was almost out of the point of hauling, was almost at the point of hauling out blueprints of the reconstruction of the central building in the 30s to confirm that the tower had been added when one of the evacuees came back to tell his little team that it was connected. He had a way in. They made their way beneath the ground by torchlight, hiding from Whitman's lethal gaze and the harsh midday sun following the haphazard directions that had been provided by the janitors. When they finally came upon the access grate for the tower, all three men were slick with cold sweat. Whoever stuck their head up out of the grate first was liable to have it blown off if the sniper was guarding this point of access. At that moment, nobody knew who he was or how well he knew the building that he'd made his fortress. Given the arm armament that he had displayed so far, wasn't even unreasonable to assume that there might be booby traps laid out to prevent uh, any attacks. Absolutely. 
Um, after what felt like eternity, Houston's face appeared at the hole and he gestured them up. The basement was clear of traps and ambushes and they made it into the monster's den. So they were inside now. They finally got in. Okay. Yeah. So then from the lobby, they could hear the, the rapid gunfire from outside and see the light of day once again. Their fears about the killer hiding under each new corner were washed away in the light. Of course, he was still pinned down at the top of the tower. That sense of security was shattered just a moment later when Ray Martinez banged in through the front door and found himself facing the business end of three rifles. So while this one cop was like, hey, we're going to be safe, we're going to go underneath, this other guy's like, fuck it, all in, I'm running. I'm going in. I got this. Right. He was sprinting all out from one spare spit of cover to the next in a zigzag that took him across the South Mall, passing unharmed through Charlie's lines of fire a half a dozen times. Charlie was an expert marksman, and he prepared for this day meticulously, but he wasn't omniscient. He couldn't be looking in every direction at once, and the crowds of hunters on the edge of campus were the ones occupying his attentions at the moment. Allen reported that the sniper was still up top firing out at the crowds, so their plans were easy to finalize from there. They would take the elevator up to the 26th floor, then proceed up the stairs to the final level in case of an amb ambush was prepared at the top. When they came to the top of the tower, they proceeded carefully on foot with their weapons at the ready. They were spread out uh, to search the 27th tower, uh, moving room by room, covering one another carefully and doing everything by the book, despite the two of them never having seen the book in question. Uh, they found <laughs> MJ Gabor and one of the offices trying to call for an ambulance and having no luck getting through. Remember the guy and his kids from the very beginning? Yes. The emergency lines were blocked by the volumes of calls. He told them about his family, warned them about the madman. With that duty done, he was sent downstairs with Jerry Day to a white rescue. Jerry wished them all luck before heading into the elevator. The remaining four finished their sweep of the floor and began ascending once more when they heard a noise in the stairwell up ahead. Something like a harsh draw, breath, or sob. They readied their weapons and crept around the corner in the charnel house into a charnel house. Blood splattered the walls with goblets of flesh. Two women were lying, laying apparently dead on the stairs. Pieces of a young man were scattered across the top. Dub Cowan stayed behind to, to attend to the wounded, passing his rifle off to Allen, but the others moved on, still creeping uh, slowly forward. He's out there, Mike's voice echoed down the stairwell. He was still propped up by the hastily assembled barricade, wedged in parts, uh, wedged beside the parts of his brother, but too weak from the blood loss to drag himself out of the red nightmare that was now drying to a stickly consistency all over his body. Ugh. Houston pulled him carefully back down the stairs to receive medical attention, and the slim duo of Alan and Ray squeezed through the gap 
that the boy had occupied and carried out onto the observation platform. Um, it was, as the boy said, Charlie was outside. Ray radioed their position back to the police station and requested an update from the suspect so they could form a uh, tactical response. While the messages were relayed out to their eyes in the sky, the two of them waited with their guns leveled at the door to the platform. At any moment, the killer might hear them and come charging in guns blazing. There would only be a moment when they thought they might have a hope of putting them down permanently, and they couldn't waste that opportunity. Sweat trickled down Alan's face as he shifted his grip on the rifle uncomfortably. His wish that he had a, he wished that he had his own gun or at least one that he handled before. This hunting rifle felt alien in his hands after so long training with different arm armaments. Eventually, the radio crackled, making them both jump. Uh, the target was on the north-facing side of the platform opposite to the door that they would be using to exit their last little pocket of safety. Setting Allen as a rear guard on the do door to prevent the enemy from circling back, um, Ray Martinez crawled out onto the observation platform past the arsenal of weapons that Charlie had laid out began to inch his way around the tower with a service revolver in hand. In the stairwell, Jerry Day returned into the foyer using the ele elevator and realized that Ray and Allen had gone ahead without any support. Houston caught on at the same moment and had begin been too busy triaging the survivors until that moment. They left the mangled and weeping remains of the Gobor family behind and hurried up as fast as they could go. Jerry took up Allen's position on the door and Houston jogged off at the rate. Left to his own devices, Allen set out to complete the, the pincer movement, circling around to the other side of the tower. Rain Houston moved slowly around the building, but when they came to the final corner, they knew they'd come to a halt. They knew exactly where their sniper was, but to take another step would be to move into a line of fire. They needed a distraction. They were very cautious of this guy, which was very smart. Yeah, absolutely. The silence at the top of the tower was shattered by the roar of a rifle. Alan froze mid-cuss. Uh, because what Alan did is what you never do, and he was getting a grip on his gun, and he pulled the trigger. Yep. But this was the distraction they needed. Uh, in this instant, Charlie was ripped out of his, his, uh, his kind of his mode. Uh, the rifle in his hand snapped to his shoulder and he took aim towards the corner where the gunfire had sounded. How dare they come here? How dare they creep into his tower and interfere in his plans? Wouldn't it matter. They given the game away. Now he would have wiped them out the same way. All these, no, he did all these nobodies down below. His perfection wouldn't be interrupted, interrupted by sneaking cowards. Mm. Yeah, man. So we're getting to the end. Finally, right? Uh, yeah. Houston and Ray couldn't have asked for a better distraction. The two of them sprang forward. Charlie was sitting in the corner with his hastily 
reloaded rifle pointed towards the sound of the gunfire at the other corner. Their narrowed eyed, uh, narrowed eyes only met for a moment, and then the policeman Ray emptied all six chambers of his revolver at Whitman and missed all but one. <laughs> yeah. um, but this shot just deflected off the rib cage. It didn't go in. It didn't, you know, it wasn't a good shot. Yeah. So he's just like, you know, uh, like Pulp Fiction. Have you seen that one? Yes, I've seen Pulp Fiction. When they go in the door and the dude just unloads the, the revolver at him? Yeah. 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 So uh, he spun to face him, lining up a headshot on Ray when... Uh, when um, uh, Houston dashed out past Ray and opened up with his shotgun. His aim didn't have to be perfect. It didn't even have to be good. Uh, he hit Charlie twice in the face and chest. Charlie didn't need uh, to feel those shots for them to stop him. The impact alone was enough to knock his aim wide and pushed him back against the wall. When he tried to draw a steady and breath, and line up his shot again like Daddy taught him, he found that the breath came bubbling up his throat amidst a flood of blood. Houston stared in horror as the sniper's arms continued to move despite the shot unloaded into his skull. Wow. So he's still moving. So Ray dropped his empty pistol and snatched his shotgun out of Houston's hands. He closed the distance with the sniper and unloaded one final shot, point-blank range, right into Charlie's face. Neither okay, of the men on the Yep, neither of the men with Charlie had ever heard a death rattle before, but the sound of the air escaping from his lungs as he slumped lifeless to the ground was more like a sigh of relief than anything else. They waited for a long time. Uh, they waited to see if this guy was coming back. He was almost getting superstitious lore after they shot oh, him in the face. Oh, and yeah, kept man. The rampage was over. With the sigh of relief, Ray stood up. A bullet grazed so close by his head that it roughed his hair. Alan burst around the corner to see the sniper dead and the mission accomplished. More bullets hammered into the wall. Um... The suppri suppressing fire didn't stop just because Char Charlie was dead. Uh, so they were frantically radioing, and they found a flag and uh, Charlie's items, and they just brought that up, said, you know, waved it like, hey, we got him. Yeah, right on. Charlie's campaign of terror was brought to an abrupt finish just two hours after he started shooting from the tower. The majority of the injuries and death happened within the first 20 minutes before a counteroffensive was launched against them. With yeah, the this full was just tool, one man. With the full toll for events in the day are counted, there were 32 wounded and 17 killed as a result of Charles Whitman's result assault on the University of Texas. But the legacy of, of his actions would echo until today. Right on. Many modern models of criminology treat mass shootings like Charlie conducted to be infectious. If that was so, then he was patient zero for the pandemic that would soon sweep across America. There had been mass murderers before in history, but none of them had been televised. Every psychopath in the country suddenly had a playbook 
to run their own version of Charlie's Massacre. So every school shooter, every mass shooter of the modern era owes the debt of gratitude to Charles Whitman. Uh, <laughs> he's been honored by a great many of them in her manifestos and her suicide notes. He's like, you know, the what what people always think Marvin Niedermeyer is. He's a piece of shit, too. He's the OG. Mm-hmm. So, the fan-made website celebrating school shooters praise him extensively, and his score is well-known in those circles, with many competing to better it in their own massacres. Sandy Hook, Virginia Tech, and Columbine are names that only resonate with sense of violence because Charles Whitman showed their perpetrators that they could have all the attention that they deserved it desired if they were willing to kill for it. He's the Jay-Z of school shooters, of mass shooters, because he gave him the blueprint. What? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, uh, Hova. Madness. Madness was assigned to blame for uh, Charlie Slaughter. And the same way that the mass murderers are attributed to mental health issues. Um, there was no way that a sane man could have committed the crimes that Whitman was accused of. Therefore, guilt must lie in his twisted mind. An autopsy was conducted on Charles Whitman. Uh, his brain had been badly damaged by the barrage of shotgun shot that had passed through it. And there was a great deal of complaint from the psychiatric community that bringing Whitman bringing Whitman in alive would have provided infinitely more useful data. Um, even so, it was easy enough from the coroners to uh, detect a tumor in his brain, an unobtrusive little yellow-gray blob the size of walnut that was nonetheless draining blood supply from other areas uh, of the brain and pressing against the amidala. Okay. The amygdala is the part of the brain that results in the relates to the fight or flight response. It has been argued that it was the pressure that led to Whitman Whitman's violent outburst and ultimately to the events in the town. Studies conducted in the years since Whitman's death have included other uh, patients with similar tumors infiltrating the amygdala more directly resulting in them losing all impulse control, becoming uh, nymphomaniacs or violent uh, psychopaths as a result. A man, similar tumor, a similar tumor led one man to develop a sexual attraction to children then abated when it was removed and returned when the tumor began to grow back, alerting medical staff to the fact that he needed further treatment. The brain is a complex machine that's still beyond the full understanding of medical science. Having one chemical within, within it out of balance is sufficient to launch people into depression, anxiety, and hallucinations. The breakdown of connections in the brain caused by Alzheimer's and dementia often result in massive personality shifts in those suffering from those diseases. With the initial coroner's report 
noted the tumor in Charlie's head. The report didn't assign any blame for his uh, for his actions to little knotted mass of cancer. He was under no pressure to explain away the larger consequences. It seemed entirely plausible to the medical examiners that were assembled to give the report of Charles Whitman's brain that the tumor was the root cause of his actions. The ultimate mitigating circumstances for his crime, his brains betrayed him. To add to this detail of tragedy, tragedy, it seemed more likely that the tumor had grown inside the head of Charles Whitman as a result of some violent trauma that he suffered in his earlier life causing damage to that sensitive tissue and setting it to repair itself in a faulty manner. Most likely one of his many beatings that he received from his father. Absolutely. Many now believe that Charles Charles Whitman's Tower Massacre couldn't have been conducted by someone suffering from uh, from that type of aggression. The primary symptoms of those suffering from tumors are injuries that affect that part of the brain as a loss of impulse control. The tumor could certainly have caused some of the other symptoms he was experiencing, including the headaches and the hypergraphia that he very clearly displayed, but at no point did he show a lack of restraint and self-control. Absolutely. You're right. So, Charlie was survived by his father and two brothers. Charles Whitman Sr. has denied all culpability for the crimes of his son, claiming that the young man was deranged and his letters about the cruelty that his father had displayed couldn't be believed because they were so obviously the product of mental illness. Just as Charlie can never admit failure, so too would his father refuse to acknowledge that he had done anything wrong. Telling people right up until his very last interview that he'd been a stern man, but never belligerent with the children, expressing his his pride in how well he taught his children. I taught all my boys to use gun. All of them are good. That's a hell of a way to put it. I mean, he's not wrong. So that's it, folks. That's the Texas Chowers shooting. The Charles Whitman, the life and times. I hope you learned a lot more. I know I did. Johnny, what are your thoughts? I thought it was a very fascinating and full dive into a fucked up individual that suffered from a lot of mental health issues. Uh, that doesn't excuse his actions, but it's unfortunate Dan, again, uh, I'm always impressed by your research. I thought that was very thorough. Great episode back from that fucking holiday special. And, uh, hey, I'm, I'm not going to keep us on for much longer, but I'm going to wrap it up and saying I want to dedicate this episode to my aunt who passed away this morning. Definitely. Um, and I also kind of want to get your opinion on something. Is that okay? Yes, sir. What do you think? I mean, ultimately, he's the cause of his own face. But what do you think? Do you think the tumor caused it? Do you, do you just think uh, putting this pressure on himself led to a mental break? Um, I thought that his father's, the way he raised him was really detrimental. The fact that he had that tumor uh, was probably the pushing over Mark and the lack of mental health help. And understanding at the time was what led to us. I feel like he could have uh, been treated 
in today's time, but they're still mass shooters. So you never know, you know, some people and as, as wrong as this might seem, some people are just destined to do certain things. I feel like. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can have blamed the abuse on it, but we covered this in the, uh, Tommy Lynn sells episode. He, uh, you know, you can blame it on your parents. Yes. If he would have been nurtured a little bit better, he might not have gone down this path, but that's not what happened here. If Absolutely. He, with the, he should have stayed with his therapy, but he didn't get the answers he wanted from the first section. So he just kept going back and back and back. Or he didn't go back. He should have. He should have went back and back, but he didn't. Yeah, man. If you're having fucked up thoughts, please reach out to somebody. You know, it's better than losing your shit. Yeah, a hundred percent. Uh, well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, folks. Johnny, I know you did. Uh, we'll be back next week in the new year with uh, <clears throat> the stock market crash and the Great Depression. As always, folks, I'm Dan Brady, and I'm Johnny Smith. And thank you for listening. Peace and love. It was a moonless night. I was 18 years old. Life was going nowhere. It was midnight at the railroad tracks. Miles away from anywhere. Said my dark prayer. You didn't look quite how I figured. Green suit and black hair. Smile on his face, ribbons on his chest. He seemed to walk on air. Some wealthy and brave. I travel the world, be powerful, but a slave until my grave. Now it's raining in the desert. I said, Always gotta rain on me. I'm just another other. Devil's dogs Would they ever want with me? He grinned I signed my name Diabolical back seal Heard the cadence of an evil choir Sand shifted I fell Into the pit March with the other damned Until I was one of them But for every deal with Satan They all face judgment at me I was sentenced to a floating prison It's raining
tired of being the devil's dog Lost out on the scene I spent half my time Sweating out of doors Running shit Devil's Dog